Shrink Wrap is a series of in-depth, candid conversations with creative entrepreneurs who have forged unique careers that defy convention. Each conversation unwraps the subtle and sometimes not so subtle layers that form each guest's distinct body of work. I'm Bradley Bowers, and this is Shrink Wrap. Jordan Graves is the queen of code. She has crafted zeros and ones into a rich language of art and design. Her work leaps over genres, defying definitions and antiquated limitations. Through her work, she makes us, the viewer, the user, the wearer, accomplices in an ever-evolving dance of human-computer interaction. And the best part, she's just getting started. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, all right. Three, two, one, go. Um, <laughs> Bradley, no this is really hard. Okay. So I'm Jordan Graves. I'm a designer based in Atlanta, where I'm originally from. And I work with a lot of different materials from code to textiles, jewelry, interactive installations. Um, I guess I would also consider myself a creative technologist and um, also working into uh, becoming a human-computer interaction researcher since I'm newly a PhD student at Georgia Tech. Nice. So it's kind of multidiscipline, uh, multi-genre kind of work that you do. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm i always switching between materials. So mm -hmm. it's it's hard for me to kind of say that I'm a specific type of designer. Um, because for a while, I was actually introducing myself as a jewelry designer. But then I realized that I haven't designed jewelry in like three years. So I probably should stop saying the new, that yeah, I'm a jewelry designer. But some, you said something actually in your intro that immediately piqued my ears. Mm -hmm. I think it's very cool that you consider code or coding to be a material, which I, until you said it just then, never, ever thought of it that way. But I think that's a really amazing way to think of it. I don't know if that's what you intended, but that's at least what I grabbed from it. The same way someone uses marble or clay or fiberglass, you use code. I think yeah. that's really cool. It, it is true. Um, maybe not necessarily the programming, but the numbers themselves. Mm -hmm. I do kind of feel like I almost work with numbers the, the same way that somebody would work with clay. It's, it's different from like, you know, we, we talk about 3D printing and how that's different than if you're, mm -hmm. you know, on the wheel and you just like throw a mount of clay on there and then you sort of build up the form by massaging it into its desired shape. That's exactly right. the same way that I write my code is it's just kind of um, starting to write different mathematical equations and then um, slowly iterate them and build on them until I get the desired form that I'm looking for. And when you're doing these, well, actually kind of, I want to know where did that kind of start? Because I remember when I was in, I believe it was, it was middle school. I was in eighth grade going into ninth grade. And that must've been 
early two, maybe 2000, 1999, 2000. And at that point, I don't know if you remember this, but everybody on the media was saying, teach your kids Russian, Chinese, and coding. That's the future. That's what they need to be learning how to do. JavaScript, Python, uh, I think it's C++ or whatever Mm -hmm. the right name for that is. Was that something you started early on around middle school, high school? Did you come to it recently? How did that whole coding language become a part of your material toolbox? Yeah, so I didn't formally learn coding, um, but I did actually start it around that time, around freshman year of high school, but it was only for the purposes of editing my MySpace page. <laughs> you know, you got to have that. Like, I know exactly what, yeah. HTML, make your yeah. backgrounds, add yes. in those like widgets and shit. Like, I come with changing your colors, getting like some crazy neons, some weird effects. Yeah. I, yeah. With your, what was it? Hex? Is it hex code? That's like the color, the n- numbers and letters that designate a specific RGB value. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. I have not thought of that. Everyone's got it easy with Squarespace now. Yeah. MySpace was. (laughs) Yeah. So so that was the very beginning. And then, um, you know, a little bit of CSS and HTML for just, you know, building a website and stuff Mm -hmm. during undergrad at SCAD. But... I didn't actually sit down and start learning how to program until I guess it's now been five years ago that I, um, I was just bored. I had a lot of time on my hands because this was about a year after I started my jewelry business. And Mm -hmm. that first year I was traveling all over the country, just like different city every day for sales appointments. So just, I, I know this story. And I use it to tell people who complain about luck and magic not falling out of the sky into their lap. And I go, first of all, sit down and be quiet because Jordan Graves wrote the book on how you make things happen for you. You don't wait for them to happen. Mm -hmm. So please run me through the... The saga, the journey, the, the journey west that you took when you began your jewelry business and how it came to kind of be in all of these stores mm-hmm. across the U.S., yeah. not just in your neighborhood. Yeah, I'll, I'll try to make that story a little bit quick, but... I had started this jewelry business while I was working for SCAD. So I had a full-time job and then I would come home from work and just design jewelry and um, start to think about marketing. I did try to reach out to stores and try to do little weekend trips to Atlanta to meet with places, Mm -hmm. but... um, And this would be trips from Savannah to Atlanta? Yeah, from Savannah. And then I did a trade show at the... um, where is it in Atlanta? Hi, is it the America's Mart? It's America's Mart. Yeah. Yeah. So I did a trade show there and I was like, I'm going to do this trade show and it's going to be great. I'm going to get all these accounts and then I'm going to come back and I'm going to quit my job and do this full time. And then mm-hmm. I, I, I lost money during the trade show, but then mm-hmm. I realized like, 
I can't just sit at a trade show and wait for customers to come to me because they're not going to, you know, like I need right. to go out there and do that. So that's when I And why do you think they wouldn't come to you? Because the kind of the, the selling point of trade shows is, hey, thousands of people who are looking to buy are going to be in this room and we want you to be in that room. Pay us a little bit of money and you'll they'll they'll have to see you. Yeah, that's what made you think that wasn't going to be the case or not made you think you saw it. Yeah, I saw it because there's just too much going on at those shows and people, buyers, they just walk through, they don't stop and look at what you have. And Mm -hmm. I've heard from other trade show, you know, salespeople that they're like, Yeah, you know, you just have to kind of show up a couple times to sort of build that brand so then they see your name a few times they know you're legit and then they'll stop and check out your booth it's like that's bullshit you know i'm not gonna i'm not gonna drop thousands of dollars multiple times just so somebody will take me seriously and um or just look in your direction not even take you seriously but just look at yeah even just stop so um so yeah so i ended up not doing well at the show, realized that I really should just reach out to stores, but I needed to still be there physically. So I I went back that following Monday and I quit my job. And I, when I was telling my supervisor that I was quitting, she's like, oh, that means the trade show went re- really well. And I was like, <laughs> no, it didn't. And I just burst into tears. And I'm like, so that's why I have to quit. I have to quit. <laughs> I was so upset actually leaving this job because I had the best coworkers. Um, but enough of that story. So, so yeah, I decided that um, – well, originally I decided that I was going to go to New York. So I was going to go to New York okay. for a month and I would meet with all these stores and it was going to be amazing. Um, it wasn't, but um, the way up to New York was great. So I took a week to get up to New York. So one day hit up a bunch of cities in North Carolina and then another. Day. And this is you driving. So yeah. you drove. Yeah. Vanity. And stopped along the way. Yeah, me and my car by myself doing this trip. So, um, so yeah, it hit up like every major city between Atlanta and um, New York. And it went really well. Like, I was in Baltimore for maybe three hours and I got three orders. (laughs) And, um, And did you go ahead and book appointments ahead of time or was it kind of yeah, knock on my door? I try to. So I usually try to set meetings about a week in advance, but mm-hmm. um, I set an appointment in Philly the morning of, and I still ended up making hey. a sale. So, um, nice. so yeah, it, it, it did work out sometimes doing the last minute thing, but then, yeah, I got to New York and I was there for a month and I got two appointments and one sale the entire time, Hmm. which was very disappointing. Um, But then after New York, I went back to Atlanta, but I took like a weird, well, not weird, but purposefully out of the way route that I went West all the way to Chicago and then Mm -hmm. um, sort of still driving by the way, still driving. And then, uh, 
down the Mississippi and hit up like every single state east of the Mississippi River. So um, that was in the fall. And then the following spring is when I did seven weeks to the West Coast and back. And uh, yep. And in the- out of that, how did you, well, what was the result of, so the week trip up to New York, mm-hmm. you got sales along the way, multiple. Yeah. The month in New York just resulted in two. And you were kind of like, you know what, New York, uh, I'm not going to just sit here and hope that it stops raining when it looks like it's going to be here for a while. So then you go Chicago and down, mm-hmm. grab sales there. Why not just stop that? Why not just say, great job, I'm done. I'll just book it off of these sales that I've already made. Well, because the sales wasn't enough. <laughs> so Okay, so you were like, more, I want to push this further. Yeah, because yeah, I needed to continue to um, just continue to get more accounts. There was no reason for me to stay in Atlanta, you know, when I could be potentially meeting with more stores. And I felt like the West Coast would have a lot of opportunities. So when I first started the trip, like when I first moved out of Savannah, I think I had about five stores that were selling my jewelry. And then Mm -hmm. after the East Coast leg, I had about 30 stores. And then after the West Coast trip, and that ended up being like somewhere between 80 to 100 I kind of stopped counting, nice. yeah, because then things got a little bit messy where some stores had, like, seven locations, and then there were a couple stores where I was doing consignment rather than them purchasing it wholesale, so then I was kind right. of trying to figure out, like, okay, should I really count those stores? So it was at least 80 stores. Okay. Um, and do you find a weirdness with consignment? I've... I've talked to quite a few people in the industry because I've brushed up against the same thing you're talking about, not nearly on the same scale, but I often, I'm slowly getting back into the game of being okay or comfortable with consignment. I forgot about that train. I don't know if you can um, hear it, but I always get up uh, in one of these, listen to the audio back and you can't even hear it. I hear it a little. <laughs> so I just, then I just sound crazy. Um, I'm going to talk through it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a train coming, guys. And they're like, what are you talking about? Um, so I've kind of shied away from stores that do consignment, especially museum stores. Museum oh, stores yeah. seem to think mm-hmm. that they own, <laughs> that they have no money. And I'm like, I've seen your galas and I've seen your uh, your trustees list. Y'all have the money to pay for these pieces. Yeah. Uh, do you Do you find it to just be a cost of doing business to accept consignment? Or do you try to balance that out a bit more and say, I'm only going to do 20% of my sales through consignment. The rest of it is going to have to be wholesale. Yeah. I, um, so at first I did it because I was desperate for any opportunities, but now I'm very selective and I almost say no always for consignment Um, The only exceptions would be if the pieces are, like, really expensive. You know, like, I mean, my jewelry, the the bulk of it retails from $18 to $40. Like, it's not expensive. People, stores should be buying that outright. But if I was doing some more expensive pieces that are, you know, like, several hundred dollars, then um, 
you know, I might be open to it for stores that I know have the ability to sell it. Um, you know, like mm. somewhere like ShopScad, they have those customers that will right. come in there. So um, that would be a situation that I'd be okay with it. Or if there's some stores that are kind of more like a co-op that everything in the store is on consignment. Um, right. So I there was a store in Atlanta that I was selling at for a little while, and it was sort of like a co-op situation. But um, but yeah, but just in general, it 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 just depends. But I I've also had a lot of bad situations with it where I sent hundreds of dollars of jewelry to a store. Um, mm-hmm. Where was it? It was somewhere in Ohio, I think. And then they they didn't report any sales. And then after like a year, I'm like, hey, you haven't said anything. And they're like, oh, yeah, the jewelry is right. actually in storage now. It's like, seriously? Right. You didn't. You, sp- you return yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, you don't yeah, keep exactly. that. <laughs> and then they never even sent it back. So, Yeah. That happened to me with a very prestigious museum in Washington, D.C., who I shall name. It was the Museum of, and this is the part that burns the most. It's the, it has like the worst, longest acronym ever, but it's the Museum of African American History, Heritage, and Culture. And I'm like, really? Y'all gonna take my stuff? I, oh, I'm not even gonna get into how hot I am about that. But basically, the exact same thing that you're talking about, except this was the audition process of, okay, send us a few samples of your pieces. I've already sent photos. I've already sent like material specs, the price list, all of that. And then they receive it. No word. I throw out like 50 emails, hundreds of phone calls. The woman that I was in contact with goes on ghost mode. And I'm like, you guys have to be kidding me. I was like, I'm sending my sister who lives in D.C. I'm like, I need you to, because the woman's office wasn't in the museum. It's like, it's a Smithsonian museum. So they have like another office. I'm like, Yasmin, I don't know how you're going to get in, but I need you to go and get my box of stuff back. Because this was, it it was a lot of stuff. But anyway, um, so Jordan Graves quits her job, full-time job, hits the road, starts racking up accounts, and... She's making jewelry, selling it, doing repeat sales. How does she then end up as a PhD researcher at Georgia Tech, building robots out of okay, coffee cans? I'm, How not, I'm, not, I'm not building <laughs> such robots. Let me just stop you there. Um, but the, the, whole, the whole purpose of us taking this sidetrack uh, path to the West Coast and back was for me saying that after I did this, I didn't have to travel anymore, mm-hmm. but I had spent all this time traveling. So now I had a lot of free time. So then I used that free time to learn how to code. Ah, okay. Yes. So, so. And was the coding built into the jewelry, just not directly? Because I know that was another thing I was going to ask you. I've seen your jewelry and it's unorthodox. And I find that anytime I make something that's unorthodox, I have to be in front of that thing, in front of the person, and I have to walk them through it, then they get it. But if I just sent it as is and said, hey, this is a, a lamp, or hey, this is a chair, 
oftentimes they go, uh, what? So I think the only unfamiliar thing for buyers was the material. Um, Okay. Because the material was unique. It's 3D printed nylon and it's kind of hard to understand just the weight of it. It's so light and then flexible as well, um, which are definite benefits to it. So then you can have like, and it's most buyers I'm I'm sure because it's jewelry. If they're familiar with nylon, they're probably thinking fabric and fashion Mm -hmm. as opposed to structure and object. And a lot of people think that it's paper. Um, yeah, it's just kind of educating them on the material, but mm-hmm. in terms of the forms, the designs, they're, they're understandable. You look at it and it's like, okay, this is a necklace. This is, these are earrings. This okay. is a ring. It's, um, it's not anything that's hard to get. I did make one ring that was for two fingers and that really tripped people up. They really didn't get it. <laughs> <laughs> they're like wait wait have, have my whole hand and you're like no no yeah two things just two, two fingers holes, guys come on holes, you know so i put it on my eye how does that um, please put that down so, so yeah that one was a little bit more confusing but um yeah people did oh <laughs> No, I just remembered one time that somebody grabbed a bracelet and thought that it was like a choker. <laughs> You're like, come on, y'all. Luckily, come luckily on, the material's y'all. flexible, but um, You're like, that can't possibly be the first place your mind goes. It can't. That can't be what you thought. It was this funny. Was. But again, I have brushed, and I think that's, and I, that's something I do want to talk about because that is kind of the bane of contemporary design in any field or contemporary art, any con- creative field that's brushing up against the edge of technology's limit, I think, or not think, I've seen it myself, often has to go through this translation mm-hmm. phase where people would love it if they could grasp and comprehend why it is the way it is and where you were going, as opposed to extruded cylinders, no explanation, no translation necessary, I'll order 50 of them. Even though it does nothing extra or push the envelope at all, I get it already. I've got 20 people who will buy those right now. So is that something that you still brush up against even today, although you're not necessarily as deeply in the jewelry game as you were before, do you find that in your coding, in the uh, graphic work that you're doing, in the digital work that you're doing, do you still have to kind of have these face-to-faces with people to get them to see the vision? Well, I think recently, it's kind of similar to that, was when I launched my knitwear line that... Um, oh, yes, love <laughs> Um, it's, it's a thing where people don't know how to use it because they haven't been offered that type of choice in what they're buying. So, Mm -hmm. um, so my knitwear line that I launched, uh, I guess almost two years ago, um, it's, yeah, repeat offender, it is, but repeat offender, offender is spelled with three F's. And uh, we can get to check out Jordan's website, repeat 
is it repeat dash offender or is it just one word? One word, no space, no, no hyphens, no nothing. Repeat offender with three Fs dot com. Also repeat offender on Instagram. Yes. Twitter. Yes, I, I will I will add know, a link I'm to all of that. <laughs> um, well, I'm gonna put a link to all of that okay. on the page with this just so people can find it all in one place. Um, but yeah, where I was going with the knitwear line is that the knitwear, it is completely custom that you are able to have a generative design on a sweater or a sweater dress um, or sweater crop top. And and you're not saying custom like people typically say. People say, oh, you can get a custom hat, which means you can pick pink, blue, orange, or green. You're saying, and I've used your site, you're saying, hey, this is, here's the color palette. The design, like the actual design of this thing is completely in your hands. Push it and pull it until you like what you see. And I will make that right there for you. And unless somebody else pushes and pulls it the exact same way you just did, yeah. that's one of a kind. Yeah, I, um, I calculated, which I might have done it wrong, but I think I did it right. It's something about something like 10 billion different variations um, that you could choose from because there's, there's 12 color options, which you can pick four up to four. And then there's Mm -hmm. three different types of pattern sets. There's a stripes and polka dots and a plaid pattern. And by moving your mouse around, you then um, change the parameters in that pattern to make it your custom. And that's every individual user on their machine. They don't have to download an app. They don't have to do anything special. It's right, right yeah, there. It's all in the web browser. And then when you add it to the cart, all of that information is saved. So then I'm able to um, have your exact pattern to then be able to um, process that to have it made. So... And the beauty of this, and I want to just jump in, I interrupt (laughs) quite a bit, but I get excited. But the beauty of this that I see, at least, is it's finally dispelling that myth that parametricism, customizing, uh, I guess, consumer goods and interaction make things or interactive design elements make things Mm. expensive make things unachievable for the everyday consumer. And what you've done is completely kicked that out the window and said, no, we can do 100% legitimate customization that doesn't restrict the user to two options, pink or blue, and do you want yeah. it up or down? I, and that's something that I love about what you're doing is because it's, it's not, the sweater is not more expensive because you chose a different pattern. Whatever pattern you pick, that sweater is going to cost that. Now, if you get a bigger sweater, obviously that costs more. You get a smaller one, that costs less. But you're not being charged for your interaction and for your for your kind of uh, unique perspective. I love that. Yeah, and honestly, that is only enabled because of programming. Because if you think about traditional manufacturing, you're making molds and mm-hmm. then you're making whatever it is based off of that mold. So if you're like right. screen printing fabric, you have to make the screens 
and then you print it. And then every time that you want a new design, you have to go through the whole process of making a new screen. And make another static. So, um, exactly. That does add extra cost. But when things are computerized and it's just numbers, like 3D printing, um, you can then create any design and if you can automate any of that computing process, then there is no extra cost. So honestly, a, an, an industrial knitting machine is basically like a 3D printer. You have your yarn and you have all the needles and the computer decides which needles are going to knit, which colors of yarn. So um, it's definitely possible but it's but the thing that I do because the way you're explaining it is wonderful however it's kind of pulled back a little bit because this isn't something that knitting machines do naturally they're capable of it no but they they do it naturally the issue is actually the programming so I I don't know a, okay. a ton about the programming for knitting machines. I've kind of looked at the software a bit, kind of played around with it, but it's all proprietary. And, you know, these machines are like hundreds, like $100,000. And then you got to buy the software that's probably like ten grand or something stupid like that. And um, mm-hmm. it's very difficult to work with and... Yeah. Intentionally, I bet, just to make sure people yeah. don't try so to. It's, um... But I do have to stop you there because, again, Jordan, I do recall that you hacked a knitting machine and allowed people in real time anywhere on Earth who had an Internet connection to go to a website and in real time influence the knit coming out of your hat knitting machine so i I, was not (laughs) as real time as i wanted it to be so how it worked was that somebody could create their design online and then i would download it to the machine but there are people what was the delay on that like a few minutes or so or the problem is it takes you, you have to like stop knitting and you have to download patterns and then you can start knitting again. So um, what I would do is I actually did it in batches that maybe I was, I had six patterns downloaded onto the machine and I would knit those and then I would download a few more knit those. So, um, <laughs> you know, maybe like 15 minutes between you drawing something, but, I think but the- there the thing is, so the the way that my knitting machine works, which it's a Passip E6000, which they were made in like the 80s and 90s. And um, you can mm. probably still find them on like Craigslist or eBay. And um, there's like a little computer console that is sending electrical signals to the carriage of the machine that's pushing electromagnets to um, sort of push the the needles into work or out of work. So, so Naturally. that process of sending the electronic signals, there, I did see one hack that you could send that in real time from a computer, but the timing of it is extremely <laughs> difficult. And um, uh-huh. the instructions I saw were in German. So 
Oh, good. <laughs> yeah, so I, I didn't quite figure that out, which I would love to be able to do, like, real time. The stitches are being decided in the exact moment. But um, that's not exactly. I guess the, the, well, in my mind, I feel like the biggest issue would be what's the probability of two people from two different computers sending signals well, at the exact moment? Who do you choose? The thing would be my computer that's connected to it is the computer that's in charge and actually sending that signal. Okay. But then, um, you know, whatever input might change and then. Or some sort of filter or gate system that allows, that doesn't allow for not redundancies, but I guess piggybacking yeah. of something going in. So then the machine is like freaking out. Yeah, you can just freaking out. It. It's just like a canvas that continually gets drawn on and then whatever that most recent state is at the time when the data gets pulled is that then ah, okay but I um but yeah the but with the industrial knitting machines you wouldn't really be able to do that but you can i mean i was hoping that i was going to be able to crack this code in january when i was at this uh pun intended i know exactly <laughs> when i was I was in Kent State, Ohio in January for this fashion tech hackathon and it was so cool. They have like at least three stole knitting machines and they're just beautiful and amazing. And I was hoping to like figure out the code to then be able to um you know generate whatever path And are these a newer machine or from that same era? Sorry, what was that? Are these are stoles uh, the newer machines, or yeah, is that from the same so era of the like 80s and 90s? Industrial machines, so the same ones that um, um, that knit my knitwear line. Um, so the factory that I that I worked with in New York, it's the same machines. You know, the, the super expensive ones. Okay. So with the hard to use software. So um, yeah, I um, have a lot of time. We were only there for like 36 hours, and there was a lot of people trying to use the machines and it was a lot more difficult to use than I expected. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, I didn't really get the chance to figure it out, but. Is there reach out to someone at Stoll? Cause I'm sure they have some sort of department for publicity or community outreach or sponsors or something and be like, look, let's do an event. Let's get knitting let's make it exciting and and get on board with contemporary technology as opposed to actually there's a funny story. I did go to a, I guess a conference slash exhibition, almost like those marts that we were talking about earlier. And there was a company that was talking about uh, 3d printing mm. fabric. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. So I go over to their booth, Jordan, they were uh, selling knit yeah. socks. And I'm like, this is the age of spin just because, and technically, yeah, I guess a knitting machine is a 3D, a, a fabric 3D printer because it is taking filament yeah. and making it into something. But you yeah, know what we expect yeah. it to see. Don't give, <laughs> don't give me that. Um, but I think it would be an interesting proposition for a company like that to say, hey, your, com- your, your computers, aka your knitting machines already do this. Let's make it more engaging. Let's, I mean, I know your end consumer is not the individual, but any press is good press here. Yeah. Um, but I want to talk robots. 
I want to talk about, because there's so many things I love talking to you about, honestly, and just so people listening know this, Jordan and I are in constant <laughs> contact with each other Instagram I know, I, I think constantly, so and it's... Instagram message you more than anybody <laughs> else. I seriously, we it's either pointless memes or some sort of video that I just saw where I'm where someone is like breaking into the database of NASA and I'm like Jordan this is exactly what you so it it, it fluctuates between useless mm-hmm. and highbrow and so I just I could do this all day um but I do have a rando question who do you hang out with especially now that you're in uh doctorate school or what is that is that no, postdoctoral no, school what do you call do you call PhD school. school yeah yeah oh okay so who is your what's your motley crew look like when you're not on quarantine yeah, pandemic so, um so i grew up in atlanta so Luckily, I still have a lot of friends here, which is nice. Um, so okay. I, I do have a group of uh, gal pals who um, some of them I did go to high school with. We weren't actually close in high school, but we um, we became closer friends recently. So, um, so yeah, they're okay, kind nice. of my, my go-tos. And then... Are they in the creative world as well, or is this kind of uh, design this and art-free is a, space yeah, for you? Not, not any other working creatives. Um, yeah. So, okay, nice. So, yeah, and then at school, um, the digital media program at Georgia Tech, it's interesting. Um, it's very diverse. I mean, if you think about SCAD, it's like we had the School of Digital Media, which is like motion graphics and mm-hmm. animation and visual effects and game design. And, you know, it's like trying to imagine like putting all of that into one department. It's like, there's a lot of people that right. you're not really working on the same things. So there's a lot of people that are interested in exactly. game design in the program. There's a lot of people that are interested in VR and AR, which I'm not into, but I, re- I see. I think that is so up your okay, alley. So Are you kidding me? I hate VR because <laughs> I wear glasses. So like, oh yes, like I'm not into it. Yeah, glass on glass also, on glass. On glass. Um, I just get disoriented and pass out sometimes. So <laughs> I need to feel grounded, Bradley. <laughs> I'm not laughing at you. I'm laughing at you. Oh, yeah. So, and then, um, but I am actually getting into AR, which we'll go into depth later about this uh, at Bologram. Yes, because you blew my mind. Again, through our Instagram, you you dropped the bomb on me with the, uh, and because for the longest time, I did not grasp fully the difference between mm-hmm. AR and VR and it, when you sent that to me that I kind of got oh I understood now when people kept saying yeah. it's an overlay and now we get the overlay aspect of it um it's still a little chunky and clunky but I think that's just because it's relative it's not really new but it's 
it's relatively new right. in its accessibility. And so I feel like that's the part that people like you will begin ironing out the wrinkles in that. Um, but yeah, that blew my mind, especially as you showed me how it walks through and kind of tethers itself mm-hmm. to a completely different system elsewhere, which I think it, that's that I think. Anyway, I, I was thinking of something like that years ago. Didn't know exactly how to articulate it to investors where I was like, oh, you could do this thing. And somewhere else in the world, it begins doing that thing for you. And they're like, and I was like, (laughs) I don't really know either. (laughs) Yeah. So I guess, I guess maybe I should actually explain this app. So this app is called Fologram, F-O-L-O-G-R-A-M. And it's a, yeah. Oh, almost like a hologram. with With an F. And it's a plugin for Rhino and Grasshopper. So you can see your Rhino geometry in AR on your phone, but they're also really pushing using it with the Microsoft HoloLens, which um, is cool because you can see all the geometry like in 3D space. So it's really great for... um, for them building parametric objects because then you can have the hollow lens on and know exactly where you need to place stuff or angles to bend things. So there's a lot of opportunities there, which is really interesting. So, um, is it that open source where someone like you or your colleagues could start tinkering with it? Or is that kind of hush, hush, tied up tight? It kind of, it just, all it does really is show whatever you have in Grasshopper or ah, okay. in AR. So you can do anything with it. So in the app, you can also add in sliders or add in buttons. So, um, you know, say you have a slider that's... Oh, so you can... It's a two-way kind of system. It's not just Rhino feeds it, but you can yeah, also then feed exactly. Rhino from it. Yeah, Oh, nice. I didn't know that part. And it too. So say you have like some points that are then referenced in Grasshopper to build some parametric thing. You know, you can you can move those points mm-hmm. in the app and it'll update it in Rhino. So it's amazing. See, that is I literally was talking. Well, I, I was watching, I think it was the last Avengers or maybe the previous, the first, the second to last where there's those beautiful scenes of Tony Stark Mm -hmm. as Iron Man, or no, Tony Stark as himself, kind of grabbing these holograms, pushing and pulling, and then there's some 3D. I'm like, that's precisely what's necessary right now when you're thinking of architecture like Zaha Hadid or architecture like Greg Lenz or like Tom Wiscombe, where it's difficult enough for the average person to grasp these curves, blobs, Mm -hmm. and, and protrusions it's even harder when you're designing it because you kind of do need to, if like you, you know this and anyone listening who's familiar with Rhino or any other 3D modeling program, everything on your computer screen looks perfect and great, but it's at like 150th, 1/100th, or 1/300th of the scale of reality. And that's, it's like designing, it's like painting mm-hmm. the Mona Lisa on a stamp. You, lo- you There's a lot that you lose. And so I love this ability to be, interacting with it in real time virtually and actually be able to affect it as opposed to just observe it, which I think is kind of nice. Yeah. Not kind of nice. It's an awesome. Yeah, it, so I kind of do want to get into that. 
but with the HoloLens. So Microsoft yeah, sponsored I mean, me. I've, been, you, you. I, I've, I've tried on the HoloLens once, which I've heard the HoloLens 2 is better, but the screen on it's so small that honestly, like, if you just mm. want to view something, it's honestly better to view it on your phone. But if you need, like, a hands-free situation because you're building something, then that's when the HoloLens kind of is a bit more. Ah, could it be a hack or a workaround? Have you seen the ones where your phone, you turn it sideways and there's like a weird cardboard mock-up you slide your phone into? Um, Yeah. That could kind of work, I guess. The app isn't necessarily ready for that. You know, it's not like they have like a cardboard version, but who knows, maybe they'll do that eventually. Um, but I got sidetracked that the whole point that I was talking about this was that there's not a lot of people doing stuff that I, oh, I'm going to, I feel bad saying this, but there's, because the department in the digital media program is so diverse, there's not a lot of people that are working sort of in the same vein as me and getting excited about the same things as me, but when I got into this architecture class this semester, which is the robotics class, it's like, I found my people, you know? Yeah. like Your tribe. Yeah. These are the people that get excited about the same shit that I'm excited about. And that was like such a great feeling to have found that. Well, I think that's interesting because often it's the reverse where architecture students, well, maybe it's the students that aren't the problem. Maybe it's the actual professional practitioners where they typically are shy to new things and end up finding the flaws in a new system as opposed to having that kind of pioneer mentality of jump in feet first and figure it out. So I'm glad that the experience you're having is not that because I had the opposite where you show someone something new and their first reaction is, well, you know, you couldn't if that was the, and the better, a better thing to do is, so I'm glad that you're not getting the uh, yeah. negative well, Nancy. Okay. That's, so that's kind of awesome. I've also heard, <laughs> I <laughs> like, well, heard I- <laughs> um, that maybe the whole architecture program isn't great, but the digital fabrication lab is like this little oasis where uh, you know, the cool people are. Okay. Um, the misfits yeah. and the rebels yeah. hang out so, over there. Um, so it's been really nice to to found that because yeah, the digital media program at Georgia Tech it's within the School of Liberal Arts, and I don't know. I'm just like really not a liberal arts mm. person, and I just like really needed to be in the School of Design. So I'm actually having quite a bit of a identity crisis with all of this and I'm like am I in the right program I don't Uh, know well is it something that could be rectified and I know we've talked about this before just by is it because I found myself at least when I was at SCAD for my undergrad I, I there were so many options I couldn't quite put my finger on what I wanted to do but and thought that I would cripple myself if I committed too soon and then I realized, wait, I don't have to be a jewelry student or be a fashion student or be an architecture student. I can go to their events. I can maybe take an elective. 
I can hang out on their side of campus and kind of through osmosis yeah. get a little bit of what I need. Is there is there the potential for that at tech or is it kind of more siloed where you're over there and we're over here and if we don't have well, a class, we don't siloed, see each other? Um, for sure. But luckily, at least at the PhD level, there's a lot of flexibility. Um, <laughs> my advisor is really okay, nice. nice. And um, I'm always like, and so this class, I know, I know that it's required, <laughs> but I just don't know if I want to take it. You know, I kind of want to like substitute for a different class, maybe take an architecture class instead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, yeah, yeah. Can so I do that? I kind of, um, managed to like weasel my way out of certain classes that yeah, and make no, their life a no, living nightmare. No, I'm, I'm Thanks, doing fine. <laughs> um, but but yeah. So there's, I mean, and there's classes that it's like I really don't need to take this class in this department. Um, and mm-hmm. we were supposed to have a minor in a different department. So, you know, it does kind of force us to like get out. It's kind of do something it. else, but you have to actually do that. It's not like the opportunity is necessarily they, well, you have to go out and do that. There's not necessarily a lot of like inner disciplinary cross-department collaboration going on that I'm aware of. Okay. You have to be, you yeah. got to Which I guess destiny essentially. I that back because one of my friends, he's in a class that has digital media and architecture students in it, which I wasn't aware of um, until recently. So, you know, there are things. Yeah. yeah. There's some of it there. That's good. Well, my next question is about yes. the robotics. Is that something new for you or that you just stumbled across because you were at tech? Or because in my brain, if I look back over the years we've known each other, I go, well, technically, Jordan's kind of been playing with robots for a while. Maybe they just weren't outright called robots, but the knitting machines, the LED uh, uh interface programming, just the good old-fashioned computers, because at SCAD you were in motion media, those types of um, things I would consider robots, do you see them, do you see it that way, or do you see the work you're doing now as a whole different breed of robotic <laughs> interplay? That sounds gross. I but. think it's robotic <laughs> interplay. Um. <laughs> And people like, excuse me, so, you like different than you using think. digital fabrication tools for a while. And the robot mm-hmm. is honestly just another digital fabrication tool. The only difference is that this has six axes and it's right. very powerful. You know, like it can lift heavy things. It can, you know, like wield a chainsaw. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that's kind of the biggest difference with anything. It's like, you know, if you have a CNC, it's like three axes, you know, usually. Um, so this is just kind of doubling that to be able to use it in different ways, which, um, 
the class I'm in this semester that uses it, it unfortunately, you know, got cut short with the coronavirus. So um, oh, yeah. we are slowly making our way towards using this robot to cut these um, large uh, cross laminated timber panels, like four foot by eight foot by probably mm-hmm. like six or seven inches. Just like, I think I heard they were like 700 pounds or something stupid like that. Um, yeah, that's yeah, massive. Yeah, so Those are some big to, boys. Uh, get the chainsaw, put it on the robot and, you know, cut these things. Yeah. So kill a couple like, students. This is like a <laughs> intro to robotics. Like nobody had prior experience with using the KUKA robots. Oh, no, that's good. No, no, Put the chainsaw no, no. on a robot with people who've never done that. <laughs> so, um, ah, yeah, so okay. Project, that wasn't project we had one. A flashlight on the KUKA, and we were drawing in space, you know, doing some long exposure photography. Which, just for people listening, KUKA is a brand and company of, I, I guess you would call them articulated arm robots. Um, I'll put a link to that too, because the things that they can do, it's honestly, I think Kukas are only limited by the attachments mm-hmm. that you can find a way to put on them. In all honesty, they can do so much. Um, but what Jordan's saying is tech has this wonderful program where students are engaging directly with those robots, where typically the experience is make the thing you want to make and we'll send it to someone We'll send it to another tech who knows how, and not tech like a school, but a technician. We'll send it to no, them. No, no, no. They'll do it and we you'll get it back. The robot. No, that's what I'm saying. And the traditional method is oh, you don't get to do that. Traditionally, someone else does the operating and right. you kind of just wait to get your package in the mail. So I love that you guys are on the ground. Yeah. Face it to was face a little bit terrifying, thing. like holding the controller thing. And it's like, <laughs> all right, I'm going to press the button. And it's like the incredible Hulk's arm is in, in yeah. your power. You like have the power of that thing. Um, so like, you know, yeah, people can't be in the isolated the weeping moving. Um, but but yeah, so we were getting like closer and closer towards material that the first project was just flashlight moving in space. So we're not actually touching anything. The second project we were drawing mm-hmm. on a sheet of paper. So just like barely touching a surface, working within like a 2D plane for the most part. And then, um, yeah, we were going to ramp up to this chainsaw project, but um it's almost like a child or a toddler learning fine and yeah. gross motor skills in a weird way. You guys are learning the fine, gross robotic yeah. skills. Look at me. I get, I got some uh, good <laughs> analogies and metaphors in here. You, you know education. <laughs> I throw a good one out. I know, I know, uh, I know early uh, age education. Or, see, I didn't even say it. Yeah. Uh, early childhood education. Uh, so... How do you see this being incorporated into your work going yeah, forward? So, or, have you thought, or is this more just, I want to explore and play, so don't want to think about that right, right now? I'm unsure about how much 
real-time possibilities there are for controlling the robot because how we're using it right now is that we are programming it using grasshopper and then it is um sort of compiling the code that then gets uploaded to the robot then that becomes the program that it runs um you know just similar to how you would you know create whatever g-code for your 3d printer and then send it to it um but there might be real-time possibilities for uh, controlling the robot. And if there are, which I really haven't looked into, um, that would be really interesting because I'm still kind of figuring out what my dissertation area is going to be. But um, mm-hmm. you know, within digital media, there are people that are interested in human-computer interaction and I'm interested in digital Mm -hmm. fabrication tools and how we interact with them and new ways that we can design um, and potentially like closing that gap between you design a thing and then it gets made that you can, um, you know, be designing and fabricating sort of at the same time. Yeah. So simultaneously, that's one of the things that I'm interested in. So I definitely want to continue to um to explore different possibilities with the robot which i'm fortunate by being in this phd program that i'm going to be in it for like five years um so i have time you know compared to the right you know like masters of architecture students that are in and out in two years so um like everyone in my class and that class is graduating this semester except for me so um Exactly. Hey, you get to exactly. hang out with the so, with the toys longer. Yeah, I don't. I don't mind opportunities to continue to, you know, work with the robot and learn more and be able to try new things. So um, I'm very excited about that. I think it's going to be. I mean, seeing the work that you've already done so far, and this was without these highly uh, polished and developed robots, that work is already phenomenal. It'll either be magical or a horrible letdown. So I'm hoping, (laughs) I'm kidding. No, it won't ever be a letdown. I I genuinely think I gush over your work to a point that makes you uncomfortable. (laughs) So I'm going to keep doing it. So deal with it. Uh, But I do want to touch on something that you mentioned earlier, and it was with your gal pals. That's kind of your outside of this world life are there enough in your opinion are there enough women in the tech design hci world of human computer interaction for Mm -hmm. uh, the people listening that don't know the terminology Um, do you see it as kind of being isolated amongst a group of dudes is there good balance does it matter to you at all Uh, what's the take like I think that my experience with all of this might be different because, um, you know, you hear a lot about women that are pursuing computer science that get discouraged or all these things. Um, mm-hmm. But it's hard for me to kind of weigh in on that because I didn't learn computer science in like a formal education setting so it's not like I was ever in a classroom with other people 
and sort of dealing with that environment. So um, it's kind of hard. You were never in a situation where someone could say no to you pursuing it because it wasn't, it's kind of like saying, I, I never put myself in front of, actually an example that I think is apt here is Venus and Serena Williams when their father was interviewed early on, uh, something you may not know about them is they never played junior tennis tournaments. And that's kind of a weird thing to become a professional and never participate in the junior leagues of that sport. And he said, I knew if I put them in junior tennis, it would be such a mental mm. discouragement. They'd never want to be professionals. So in a way I kind of, I don't know if it's, if you see it that way, but it seems by removing yourself from that type of environment, right. the discouragement exactly. could never you get know, to you it's like if I, it was going to come. I learned how to code from YouTube. <laughs> the coding, the coding train. It, 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 I think series, it's interesting. Shiftman, if you want to learn how to code, like that's where you go. <laughs> coding train. Wait, say that again. YouTube, coding train, coding like, train. A auto, like a local. <laughs> choo choo. I'll put a link to that too, because I think yeah. that's something I wanted to know is what are your resources? So that's because I, I think I told you about Daniel Kristev, who's my go-to. If I'm ever stumped in Grasshopper, I look up his YouTube channel. It's not that he covers everything, but I do. I learn just from watching him think through the problem right. he has, even if it's not the same problem I'm dealing with. Yeah. So coding train. I like that. People go check out coding train. That's something to, and I do wish I learned how to code back in the nineties when they were saying, Hey, learn these things. And I was like, I, mean, I think I'll learn how to draw. First. It's never too late. Uh... No, it's not. It is, it is 100% too late. <laughs> All right, well, for me, it is. I know I'm not going to pick up. Uh, I'd sooner pick up Portuguese no, okay. than I would Let pick me... up uh, coding. Scripting. I got okay, picked up a uh, grasshopper so and rhino programming. There, there's really two parts to it. One part is knowing the language, but the other part, which is honestly more impro- more important, is knowing how to build a program, which is just this process of abstracting the entire idea into these little individual chunks then build the entire thing. But yeah, I actually do want to talk a little bit more about that because you said something that I thought was really interesting and something that I thought I noticed and didn't know if it was intentional. And now Mm -hmm. having heard you say it, I realize it is intentional where from your light-based work that's that's involving scripting and coding LEDs and how they interact with the audience or the viewer, and then mm-hmm. your knit-based work, which is scripting and coding that speaks more to the machine, the user or the viewer has an interaction with the code, but it's really kind of there to talk to the machine that eventually is going to make the knitwear. And now mm-hmm. the work that you're doing in uh, your doctoral studies where you're writing code and language now for the robot. And eventually there will be a viewer, but the viewer this time isn't, I guess, directly involved with the scripting or the coding. But I like this kind of, I don't know, I can't, I don't want to call it like a, a, a progression upwards. Maybe it's a lateral progression where things are really linked to each other. 
but they don't resemble each other. And I think that's really exciting to see someone still draw threads through work without it being, oh, I made a red circle. Now I'm going to make a red sphere and then I'm going to make a, a red dome. And it's there's variety in there, but there's still linkage. And mm-hmm. something that you sit down and you go, OK, how can I tie this back together? Or is it just kind of an organic process that comes out of you? Um, I guess it's organic. Um, it's not, I'm not always thinking about like, how can all of this circle back around? Mm -hmm. But it does just happen sometimes because, um, honestly, the, when I launched my knitwear line, that was kind of a circling back around, um, um, a lot of things sort of unintentionally because, um, at SCAD, my senior year, I started taking fibers classes as electives. And, you know, I was like in the motion graphics program, but then all of a sudden I'm super excited about textiles <laughs> and materiality and patterns. And um, a lot of people in the motion media program were like, I don't know what the hell Jordan's going to do with this. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, cool. what did you have an idea of what you want to do with it, or were you playing and exploring? No. Um, I was exploring and I was making some ugly stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I kid you not, I was um knitting film strip, just sitting in oh, my memory oh, hall, waiting, <laughs> waiting for my like things to render. I'm just sitting there at 3 a.m. like knitting like the film that's rolled in like the little Kodak canister um no it's like 35 millimeter um I'm gonna pretend I know what that means clear film liter so if you think about 35 milliliter film the sorry 35 millimeters you know don't worry we'll cut this part out (laughs) (laughs) there you go but like 35 millimeters like you know that 25 millimeters is like roughly an inch. Oh no, this was actually a 16 millimeter. That's what it was. It was 16 millimeter film strip. It was like clear film leader that I was painting on for my alternative techniques class in media. So that was actually an interesting class that the sort of point of that class was to create motion graphics Mm -hmm. in sort of physical ways. So one of the projects we did have like this clear film strip that we could draw directly on to create sort of like an abstract film. And Mm -hmm. then um, also with a lot of glitch art, you can kind of think about it as a more tangible way to manipulate video because if you think about like editing a video it's through some sort of software interface you're not necessarily physically copying and pasting and rearranging the bytes in the video clip the software sort of is this abstract layer that does that for you but with Mm -hmm. pitch art and one of the techniques that we had played around with in that class is literally just opening up a video file in like a text editor and then rearranging 
the bytes and the code in there. That oh, so you're on like the if if I had to say like on the molecular level of mm-hmm. that's really okay. So you're it's still not actually physical like they would do back in the in the day of silver screen. It's but it's kind of like that where it's, back then they're using scissors. Now you're using code. You're cutting code up with yeah, virtual or digital scissors. Right. Because if you think of the actual material of a video clip as just a whole bunch of um, bytes of numbers mm-hmm. that, you know, form the entire piece, then those, you know, individual pieces are, yes, the molecules. So you are sort of rearranging the molecules of the item sort of at its own level rather than through some abstracted layer of which uh, kind of mimics software. it but doesn't actually do it it's just a the software way. right exactly the software doesn't necessarily rearrange the code that mm-hmm. creates that video file it just um yeah through an abstract process creates mm-hmm. a new file so um so yeah, that was it's an interesting like, class. I guess in my mind, it because re- I'm doing a lot of, well, I've always been doing a lot of renders, but I'm starting to get into displacement maps. And so mm-hmm. I guess it's the difference between uh, a bump map image and then an actual displacement of the mesh itself. So the mesh is actually taking on that surface topology with displacement, whereas with bump map, it's mimicking it so that it can do it at a lower resolution and not use up so much memory of your computer while it's running. So I guess in my mind, I could either actually manipulate the mesh or I could visually make it look like it's been manipulated, but it's actually still the same as it was before I added that layer or that filter to it. No? <laughs> <laughs> no, not quite. No, I'm kidding. Well, you know, with bump, but like with bump yeah, maps. Yeah, I know have, exactly. I know exactly what you're talking about. You're like, no, I know what you mean. You're wrong. I you're know. Wrong. <laughs> I know what you mean. Bradley, this isn't me not understanding. This is you not understanding. <laughs> I love. You're like, no, 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 no. I get you. I got what you're saying. You're just not saying the correct thing. That's right. So I don't. Okay, so then I, I get the slicing and dicing of actual code. Hmm. Versus this, I think what I'm saying is right. Let me see if I could uh, convert you. So if you're slicing and dicing code, in my mind, that's the same as making a sphere's surface undulate like it's a wavy blob. Versus the software is going to take your video footage and it will make it look like you've sliced and diced the code. But the video footage itself, it still has its original format of being just a smooth sphere. So you could, what I, what I'm basically saying is it's kind of, uh, it's almost like, uh, you can go back to its original version just by almost like in Photoshop, just turning that layer of effects off. The original is still there, but if you're slicing and dicing code, it's permanently changed. You can, I guess, control Z it, but no. All right, let's go. Uh, so, <laughs> so how was your childhood? No, um, what I, I still, I think that's really interesting 
and again, I think you look at these things in very unusual ways. And I think that leads to your work being exciting where, again, you earlier said that you look at code as a material and it's just these numbers and how you arrange or rearrange or delete, subtract, add. Mm-hmm. It's it's that clay you were talking about. Yeah. Um, why do you, or maybe you don't see it this way. I see it this way. Why is there a lack of this type of design and art happening on a grander scale? Like I still see exhibitions of contemporary art and it's a portrait in oil on a canvas made out of linen, Belgian linen that was done in the fabric was pioneered in 16 something or another. And do you see it as kind of a niche market still of you got to go to these obscure design exhibitions to find this type of work? Or do you, because I guess you're in that research position now, so you kind of have more access to it than I do. Is there a larger group of people working this way? Or is this still kind of the uh, the weird kids in the back? Yeah, I think it's it's interesting and things might be changing. But I think that what we see depends on the opportunities to see it. Um, so what do you mean? Like, so the problem with a lot of art that's created through technology is the cost to make it, you know, mm-hmm. um, just with electronics and all of that, like it gets expensive to make what I make, especially if it's large. So, mm-hmm. you know, you have to have larger budgets first off. And then also I feel like there's a lot of calls for art that exclude certain types of work, you know, like mm. um, a lot of calls for art might just be only for two dimensional pieces or maybe three dimensional right. pieces, but anything that's time-based, you know, like it's not necessarily going to fit with, you know, whatever they're looking for or right. um, art that requires electricity. Um, that's kind of a, a hard thing with public art, I feel like is, um, you know, it's like, oh, if this is meant to be outdoors, can I actually make something? How is it going to be powered? How is it going to be protected? I feel like there's a lot of issues with the medium that um, sometimes then it's just like, oh, well, we just don't want to accommodate that then, you know, like, yeah, we could find electricity for you, but we just don't want to deal with it. So we're just going to exclude this whole type of work. That actually just happened um, with a call for RFQ or RFP. I forget which, I think it's RFP uh, in Atlanta for, uh, I think it was the airport or something like this Mm. where Pablo and I were talking and he was wanting to do a light-based piece um, that was interactive and would be this large scale installation, which is what the call for entries was looking for. And then he spoke to him and said, Hey, which I told him, I was like, do not ask them, just submit it. Yeah. Because if you ask them, whatever, whatever, how, however well you describe it, as long as you, if you say LEDs or interactive, 
their mind is going to go to a dark place of the worst LED or interactive piece they've ever seen. And that's what they're going to think you're talking about. And he asked and he said, is, can I submit a light-based piece? And they were like, oh, no, no light-based piece. We only want um, mosaics and we only... And so in my mind, the brief said we want to do something contemporary and something that shows the uh, zeal and strength of the city. Mm-hmm. And like, however, we would like for you to stick to one of the oldest forms of art ever done. Yeah. Uh, team mosaics. <laughs> and it's like, how I, I, I don't know if it's a bureaucratic thing. I don't know if it's a cultural thing. And I don't know if it's a thing where artists are going to just have to buck the system and insist by offering nothing else. Um, but yeah, it's, you're right. It's, it's a very odd moment where you, technology is completely capable of doing it. There are the budgets for it. Yet these big budgets seem to keep going to, and there's no knock against sculpture and painting. I'm a right. practitioner of sculpture and painting. It's just like, we can't keep saying we're going to push things forward if we keep holding on to stuff behind us. Mm-hmm. And, um, oh, I had another point with the, with the LEDs. The LEDs. The LEDs. Oh, man. What was I going to say? Do people actually say that? Oh, No. <laughs> Well, the interactive stuff, is that what you were going to, no, (laughs) I love trying to guess what you were going to say. So there was the call for proposals and, um, oh, Oh, they're being exclusionary of electronic stuff. Yes. Okay. What I, I remember now, but there, there is increased interest for sure. I think, um, based on these more like interactive focused um mm-hmm. sort of like pop-up art experiences which some are better than others um mm-hmm. places like uh meow wolf people seem to really like i haven't been in uh new mexico pablo mentioned that as well is that a that's a pop-up i, no, I had a feeling that that's that that not a pop-up oh. but um there are like the pop-up ones are actually usually really bad that it's just kind of like a selfie factory, you know? So it's like, there's, mm-hmm. there's a wide range of stuff that is good. Um, Cause there's also some museums that sort of focus more on um, interactive exhibits like art tech house. Um, the work there is good. And then, you know, there's like these other random pop-up experiences mm-hmm. that are mostly about just like getting photos for your Instagram. So yeah. people are interested in immersive art and it seems like, um, you know, these, uh, you know, like public art, you know, and- have you talked to the people over at dashboard in Atlanta? Cause it seems like they're right up your alley with, wanting to do at least the calls that I've seen or the, the requests for proposals. Oh, that's RFP. That's, I always call it RFQ. So RFQ request for, is request for qualifications. So if that, ah, it's, ah. it's less involved than an RFP. So you basically just like send somebody your CV and they're like, yeah, and some oh, okay, cool. We think that you're good enough. So we'll let you submit a proposal sort of thing. 
Right. And so with Dashboard, what I've noticed at least is they tend to gravitate more towards light-based work. At least I've noticed that with uh, other friends in Atlanta who work with light. Um, and they seem to be getting more uh, daring and a little bit, I think they're they're trying to be those uh, pioneers or those champions of not necessarily just new media art, mm-hmm. but artists that are working across a variety of mediums in one of those or maybe a couple of those includes new media art. Um, yeah, I would agree with that. I think that the show that you are in definitely, you know, gave new and interesting art an opportunity. And um, mm-hmm. I, I was a finalist. And publicly, which yeah, was interesting. Absolutely. I was a finalist for one of their calls and then like actually got a stipend for making a proposal. I was like, wow, this is amazing. (laughs) I've never never been paid by anybody else to like make a proposal that wasn't chosen. It was amazing. I loved that. I've I've never been, (laughs) I've never had that experience. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I think that there hasn't been, well, I think that things are continuing to grow for them. You know, like um, mm-hmm. what Pablo just did with them. Um, you know. The um, the light around us or above us, I think it is. Yeah, that's the goat. No, that's not the goat farm. That's the, the um, the Met. Yeah. But the Met in Atlanta, which is a like a compound or complex of a variety of buildings, architecture firms, design. It's a really interesting space. And but Atlanta's almost always been trying to pioneer and champion art. I don't know if it's been uh, genuine, but they've at least been doing it since I grew up there. There was always some sort of uh, what was it? Centennial Olympic Park, the sculptures that are throughout there. Uh, I think Piedmont Park had some sculptures in it. Uh, It's always been pushing technology maybe because Coca-Cola is based there and they kind of are big with technology and advertising, but I'm, I'm excited to see what the city can continue to do mm-hmm. uh, for the artists that inhabit that place. Cause it's always focused on music. I think visual arts would be a nice thing to balance that out. Yeah, I think so. And um, actually the other day I had submitted to a call for digital art through Fulton County that um it that i i have some issues with that so it was a Mm -hmm. call for digital art which is great but what they were doing is they're actually going to print the digital art so oh well that seems counterproductive (laughs) so um yeah how it was is you submit a piece digitally and then if they choose to purchase the work, they're just purchasing sort of, I guess, a license to print one copy yeah. of the piece, um, which is, you know, cool because then they don't just like print a bunch of pieces. But then again, that excludes time-based digital work. Right. So. Um, and that's an interesting point you bring up because one of my favorite architects, and I think I mention him often, is Greg Lynn. And. He has a book called Animate Form because in the early 90s and late 80s, he was a uh, a, a very um, adamant 
I guess, a uh, champion for buildings that move. And so his whole thing, this was in the 90s, early 90s. And his thing was buildings should bring time into their structure and use that as a material. And so he was using animation software to design his architecture. Mm -hmm. And he spoke about one of the unforeseen consequences of doing that was the uh, problem of the infinite frames, which is because it's an animation software, but I need to make this a building and that building eventually is going to be made out of inert stagnant material. What point, at what point do I freeze the animation and say, that's the one. Yeah. And I feel like that's a big challenge because there's an infinite number of frames or infinite a number of versions of that particular piece. And now the artist is not only, um, tasked with creating the work, <clears throat> but now they have to pick which version of itself they will present. So I think it's interesting that Fulton County says, hey, we want digital art, but we're going to retroactively turn it right back into two-dimensional art. Yeah. Um, it's so funny because that is honestly why I think that it's so much harder to design um something that's going to be physically made than when I make motion work. Cause when I make something that's moving, mm -hmm. it's like cheating. It's like, I don't have to choose which is going to be the final right. form. It can just continue to move and change and I'm happy with it like that. But then when I do you have to choose, yeah, that's definitely one of the hardest things. Well, because you're presenting every form of it, the viewer gets to take in all of it in its entirety in a, a seamless loop. Mm -hmm. And then at some point, if you're making a sculpture or an object, you almost, and the, 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 the pressure is, am I telling them this is the best version? And if that's the case, does that mean every other version is inferior? And it brings in this whole psychological aspect to it where, and again, Greg Lynn goes, my goal is not to make less than versions. I want every frame to be just as capable of satisfying the brief as any other mm. frame and even more challenging. So I think it's, yeah, it's, it'll be interesting to see how companies, uh, patrons, curators are able to start transitioning or at least bring digital time-based work into their collections. And how do you, then the challenge becomes, and I don't know if this has happened. Actually, this would be something good you could speak on because there was a piece you did in, I think it was in Buckhead, mm -hmm. was it? The LEDs along the, was it a wall or a window, I, I remember? It, it was a wall. So it was a vacant storefront. So they had sort of this temporary wall made of, like, really shitty plywood that, that I um, mm -hmm. drilled into and put the panels on there. Mm-hmm. And do they keep that piece or does that return to that you? That one ended up being returned to me. Okay. Because my thing was going to be, now the challenge becomes, if you're a painter and you have canvases that are eight feet by 10 feet, then it's pretty standard. All I need to do is have a space in a climate controlled room that can house an eight foot by 10 foot mm -hmm. canvas. But. If your piece is a series of panels that have LEDs that are wired and those wires have to go to some sort of computer 
And that computer has to run some sort of script and maybe it needs weather data or maybe it needs the population density of an area. Is it hooked up to the internet? If it is hooked up to the internet, is it a wireless or is it kick? And so new media art now brings with it, it's not just a inert thing. It feeds off of data. How do we, how do we take this piece down and then re, uh, mount it in another country very carefully what all goes yeah what all goes how do we so then what do we keep in our archives yeah do we does jordan send us a bundle of wires or a so that's the i think it's it'll be interesting to see if artists become scholars in that field because i think they're going to have to be they're going to have to tell curators how this is done um do you brush up against that at all? Or is that kind of something that you leave to them? Or are you kind of hovering over the shoulder going, oh, you know what? It would be better if you use this type of thing. And it would be better if we had this type of power and this type of connection to uh, internet yeah, data. Well, you know, you say all this thinking that somebody <laughs> else is calling for me, that somebody is hurt. Oh yeah, true. My word. <laughs> Um, You're like, this is me. I'm installing. Um, you know, but I can actually um, speak to that Buckhead piece about how it's evolved to make that process easier. Okay. So the first iteration of that piece, there were 99 LED panels that I had to drill holes into this plywood wall and then attach the pieces into it. And then... Um, Real 99 panels or 99 LEDs? Panels. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, it was okay. roughly a hundred hours on site because I then had to wire from one panel to the other because they all needed to be connected to then connect to the computer. Um, so mm. after I did that, I was like, mm, yeah, this is. This takes a long time. I should try to, um, you know, not do that again. So (laughs) when I took down those panels, they ended up being repurposed into another configuration that I showed in Augusta this past summer. And with that, it was the 99 panels that then got rearranged, and I then attached onto six four foot by eight foot panels so then i only had six panels and then i had beautifully oh because they're already pre-wired yeah so then i pre-wired just six panels and i had just maybe four connections that went from like panel one to panel two and then from panel two to panel three and they were labeled like this is one a this one's one b I connect the ones, I connect the twos, connect the threes. So, um, so the actual like connecting of all of these panels took way less time. Um, the okay. hardest part was just figuring out like how to mount them because we were not very sure about how much weight the, uh, the wall could hold. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, installing that took a whole lot less time. And then I ended up moving it to a different location in Augusta and moving it and reinstalling it. That took less than two days. 
So um, I've definitely gotten better at planning how to Mm -hmm. um, install things quicker. But um, yeah, but but things. Well, I think with Mm -hmm. that, with the LEDs, it's all contained. And if the internet is not involved, that piece could last for a while. But the problem is some projects that are then dependent on data sources that then get provided to you through the internet, that becomes an issue because then maybe the API changes and then you can no longer get that data. Um, So I had a project. And what is API? I feel like that's another highbrow acronym of Um, I don't know what API stands for, but it's how you... Let's say adjusted protocol interaction. I don't know. It sounds right. Uh, (laughs) You're like, no. I don't know. Um, (laughs) But so like an API is how you access like a database of you know, certain databases like Twitter. So you would use like Twitter's API to be able to then get tweets, you know, from like a certain user or a certain hashtag. And then Uh, that data then feeds into... They update their stuff. Ah, I see. Okay. I guess APIs are kind of just like a, a database that some company makes public and is you know, sometimes updating live. Um, So I did it. But I think this is the same as when you had painters, museums that were getting pieces into their collection prior to someone like Robert Rauschenberg. They were accustomed to people painting on linen or painting on wood, and it was oil-based, and it was linseed oil, and it was this, and it was things that they knew how to care for and preserve. And then someone like Rauschenberg shows up and he's painting on mattresses and pillows and stuffed animals and tires. And if they desired the work, then the museums had to adjust, adapt, and figure out how do we preserve and make these things archival. So I feel like this is, I don't exactly, and I don't know if Rauschenberg had much to do with the process of that, probably not. But I wonder if now it's the role of the artist or the designer or the maker to step up and educate the collectors and the curators and again, essentially kind of the, uh, the patrons of the art to say, if you like this work, here's the best way uh, to maintain it and to be able to present it again. Cause I think that's the real problem is it's not necessarily maintaining it. LEDs aren't going to degrade over the next 20 years, but how do we remount this show in a week? If Jordan's, on a beach in Turks and Caicos and isn't available to come in and physically stand there and point and click. Yeah. You, I think that it has to be the responsibility of the artist to educate. Um, not just because like it's your responsibility as an artist, but if you want to sell your work, people are only going to buy it mm-hmm. if they know they will get their value from it. You know, if, mm-hmm. if somebody is buying a piece because they want to show it multiple times, multiple places, then they're only going to buy it if they know they can do that 
and they'll only know if they right. can, that they can do that because I tell them how to do it. So, right. I think that if if I were just to say, oh, that's up to you to figure out how you're going to keep this work, like nobody's going to want to buy it then, you know. So I think mm-hmm. that it's only or if they do buy it it ends up being reshown not in a manner that you're comfortable or happy with. Right. And um, the thing is you might tell somebody and then they, they don't follow it. Like when that piece was in Buckhead, I told them, I was like, Hey, if you need to clean this, like Windex is fine. I would recommend using like mm-hmm. a microfiber cloth because if you use paper towels, you're going to get, you know, little lint fibers all over the place. And you're not actually going to clean it. Mm-hmm. And um, and they heard you say pressure washer no, with bleach. No, they just didn't even clean it. <laughs> oh, they're like, no headache. I don't even want to try it. And it was dirty as hell because this thing was outside for like 18 months. They never cleaned it. Mm. And you know what? Like people know don't touch art. But let me tell you, little kids, little kids, grimy hand fingerprints all over these black mm. acrylic panels. You know, like that shit looked disgusting. It was never clean. And the problem is people are going to think that's how you want your art to be seen. And you're like, no, that's not the, that's not yeah. the intent. It's like they have, they have like, you know, a, a cleaning staff that, you know, like mm-hmm. wipes windows down and, you know, empties trash and does all this stuff. It's like, this could have been added to the list of like, get some Windex on a towel and right. just, you know, maybe wipe these dirty things down. Nope, never. Well, I guess then that becomes a part of the rider or the contract that you end up having with the next patron or the next uh, yeah. public entity is to say here, but it's again, it's kind of, this is new territory for a lot of bureaucracies, a lot of local governments, All of this is kind of new, so I think it will be a very interesting moment to see how artists who are usually used to just handing it over and going, you guys have enough history with sculpture and painting and drawing, you know how to do this. Now people have no history with a lot of this stuff, uh, and it's kind of like, oh, I guess either I need to charge more because I'm going to be more involved, or I have to just leave it in their hands. And so I'm, I'm, I'm excited and anxious to see what the next 20 some odd years look like for artists engaging and educating so that their work can actually be received somewhat like how they mm-hmm. intended. Um, I, I just thought of something, too, how we were talking about how um, digital art is often at a disadvantage, but. For temporary public art, there is some advantages to it. So with that Buckhead project, Mm -hmm. the budget was real low. And um, it was part of a series that there were mostly painters painting murals. And then Mm -hmm. I had my, you know, weird light thing. And the thing is, the budget was low and really just covered supplies and for these painters Mm -hmm. if you paint a mural you can't take that back you know like it's temporary and it's it's on the wall and then it gets painted over but for me with this led installation 
yes, it's temporary, but then I have something that I can then take back. You know, it's not like I lose anything and it gets painted over. It could be repurposed. So, um, did with the panels, actually, you were able to repurpose that. Um, I I like that. Actually, that's a nice way to look at it is to go the materials of the digital medium or the medium of digital art have so many ways they can be manipulated or used, whereas painting can kind of only, after it's out of a tube, that's kind of it. Unless you're into that, those artists that like scrape up paint and make balls out of them, uh, not knocking it, but it's, it's, uh, yeah. I'm going to knock it a little bit. Uh, <laughs> I have a few questions that I hope you've pondered long oh, and hard about. Okay. What is your favorite, favorite word? word? Oh. Other I than suck it, bitches. <laughs> Other than that. <laughs> it's a tough one. People think these are like fluff ball questions. And I'm like, these are the ones that make you think. Um, next. That's a good word. <laughs> I like that. It's very future mm-hmm. forward. It's optimistic. I like All it. Right. Very good at it. <laughs> um, what is your favorite sound or noise? My favorite sound is somebody telling me that I'm right. <laughs> Nothing gives me more satisfaction. No, no greater joy yeah, could be had. Me, I am so competitive, and when uh, somebody oh. you know doesn't think that I'm going to be right, and then they're like, "Oh, you're you're right." It's like, yes, suck it, bitches. And then the heavens part, light shines, and then. What's your next move? Or not what's your next... Yeah, what's your oh. next move? That question wasn't written out. That's why I hesitated. Oh, use the word next. My favorite word. Oh, look at that. Nice. Um, look at that my next move. So, actually, move is uh, is a good way to describe it. Is your second favorite yeah, word. Is. Oh. Because... Um, you know, I come from a motion graphics background, and like I said before, it's the hardest part in designing something physical is that I'm usually coming from a place where I've designed some sort of generative system that produces some sort of moving animation, and then it's how do I decide which is the best one that I'm going to actually invest you know, consuming materials Mm -hmm. to make this thing. And um, so I'm, I'm interested in making more kinetic sculptures. So that's um, hopefully something that I'll have time to do over the summer, depending on if I'm still stuck inside. (laughs) Well, you do have a laboratory of a basement, so I'm not too worried 
um, about your ability to explore more things. Um, I guess getting supplies that might become a challenge if this if supply chains remain hampered as much yeah, as they are. Yeah, I think things have gotten um, better. Um, I did run into an issue recently that almost like all electronic components were super delayed on Amazon, but um, I was able to get a resin. Hello? I swear to God, if this thing... Hey, are you there? Oh, there. You, uh, okay, I was. I, I was like, if my no, internet did that, and then I couldn't. Can't. I couldn't. Like ignore it, and oh, then that's it weird. just. Yeah. So. Well, it, I don't think it. It didn't okay. stop recording, cool. so that's good. Um, yeah. So. It did catch me cursing though. So I was like, that um, but what I was saying is I got a I'll resin, debate on I got a resin for yeah. the printer in two days. So I'm still able to get stuff pretty quickly. And I have an unfortunate amount of supplies that I've been hoarding for a while. So maybe I should actually try to use them hey, that's good. rather than continuing to buy new shit. So Which is something that's difficult. I I think there's something of a elderly hoarder in every creative person because there's this, well, you know what I might use that for? And you know you're not going to use recycled twist ties from bread bags, but in your head, you're like, well, that would be a great way to organize wire. So I'm just going to keep that 10-pound jar of twist ties over I'm, there in I'm, the corner. I'm nodding my head uh, like that's maybe... actually a really great way to organize wire. <laughs> Oh no! <laughs> oh no! What am I creating? <laughs> As we start braiding the dumpsters behind bread uh, bakeries, um, my final question, Madam Graves, why do you do it? Mm. Why do I do it? I. I think that I start doing it because I want to personally consume the items that I create. So when I first started making jewelry, Mm -hmm. it's because I wanted to wear it. You know, the jewelry that I wanted, I couldn't find it. So then I made it. And then the same with my clothing that Mm -hmm. I wanted certain digital patterns on items of clothing and they weren't available. So then I just made it myself. And then um, luckily other people like it too and want it as well. So, Mm -hmm. so yeah, I think with at least things that I design um, to be worn, a lot of it is there's something that I want in my life. And I don't see it, so I'm just going to make it. So that's, that's kind of my starting nice. point. I find that that's a, a, a common one, is I didn't see it, and I had a feeling it needed to exist, and I had the ability to bring it into existence, and oddly enough, others found that they also appreciated mm-hmm. what I'd done. And so I like that. Uh, I find that that's a, a mentality that a, a lot of, 
artists and creatives share. Um, and I'm really glad that you do it because a lot of the stuff that you make, I'm, I'm just baffled by it. I'm blown away. And I'm glad that it's out there because what it ends up doing is showing other people that conformity is not the only way forward, that there are so many different routes that you can take. You don't have to make another repeat offender. You don't have to do what I'm doing, but just know that what you want to do is valid. Everyone might not appreciate it, but it's still valid. So mm -hmm. go out there and try it. And I really appreciate it about you. This has been Shrink Wrap with Bradley Bowers. Thank you for listening. Do join me next time. And as always, unwrap everything. <laughs>